Would you rather be in Mogadishu or Sarajevo or here on beautiful Lake Palestine just before the celebration of our annual national birthday? I don't think anyone here would like to go get on a jetliner and be taken over to Mongolia or to Azerbaijan or the Crimea or really even to Moscow or some of the capitals of Eastern Europe on a day like this. And we can stand here in this free land and sing America the Beautiful in our national anthem. And we all know that tomorrow is the birthday of our nation. And I thought to refresh our memory, I would bring a document some of us had to memorize and at least to recite portions of in high school. In Congress, July 4th, 1776, the unanimous declaration of the 13 United States of America. I had the very great privilege as a boy of 16 prior to the time they had moved it uh, to the National Archives, it then was in the Library of Congress to have actually seen the original document with the 50 signatures, including such notables as the two Adams and uh, Benjamin Franklin and John Hancock's very inimitable signature at the top. Now you can go to Washington, D.C. and see that same document under heavy glass uh, up on an altar-like affair where people could not deface it or get to it in the National Archives. <clears throat> when in the course of human events it becomes necessary for one people to dissolve the political bands which have connected them with another and to assume among the powers of the earth a separate and equal station to which the laws of nature and of nature's God entitle them, a decent respect to the opinions of mankind requires that they should declare the causes which impel them to the separation. We hold these truths to be self-evident that all men are created equal, that they are endowed by their Creator with certain unalienable rights, that among these are life, liberty, and the pursuit of happiness, that to secure these rights, governments are instituted among men, deriving their just powers from the consent of the governed. And then follows this lengthy diatribe against King George. He has refused his assent to laws. He has forbidden his governors to pass laws of immediate and pressing importance. He's refused to pass other laws for the accommodation of large districts of people. He's called together legislative bodies at places unusual, etc. He's endeavored to prevent the population of these states for a purpose, obstructing the laws of naturalization of foreigners, refusing to pass others to encourage their migrations hither. He's obstructed justice. He's made judges dependent upon his will alone, etc., etc. Many, many, many of them. Most of us have not read this document since high school, if we even were forced to read it all at that juncture of our lives. But at the very end of it, I think it's quite moving, when you realize that as they looked at the final words of this beautifully penned document, the last words were that for the support of this declaration, with a firm reliance on the protection of divine providence, we mutually pledge to each other our lives our fortunes, and our sacred honor. Now, they knew those men as surely as they declared themselves independent of King George that they were laying their lives on the line. I want to ask you how long it has been, how many years it has been, don't raise your hand, since you picked up an encyclopedia and looked up the biographical articles on some of these men. I had the pleasure of reading through the life of both John Adams and his son, John Quincy Adams, both of whom served as President of this United States, of Thomas Jefferson, 
uh, just this morning, read until I was about eye-weary, just refreshing my memory in little bits and pieces of some that I have known about these men. I had been in the home of Jefferson uh, Monticello and seen some of the incredible inventions that uh, he was responsible for. I realize their limitations. I realize that some of them were slave owners. I realize some of the foibles and the weaknesses of their lives, but I still want to ask us a question here today and try to imagine, if you could, turning back time and imagining that sitting in this particular Congress, July 4th, 1776, would be today's House of Representatives, United States Senate, the Cabinet members, and Bill and Hillary Clinton. What do you suppose would have occurred had the leaders of today been in place in those original 13 colonies all of these many years ago? Would the same result have obtained? What has been the practice of leadership of the United States from the cessation of World War II and the announcement that the Soviet Union possessed the hydrogen bomb? When LBJ was micromanaging the Vietnam War in a situation room in the White House telling the drivers of the FUDs, the F-105 Thunder Chiefs, that they could not bomb this target six blocks away, but they could bomb that target, that they must not overfly the docks at Haiphong, where neutral shipping from Norway, Sweden, Britain, and Canada were offloading rubber and oil and the goods to wage war, uh, and, of course, feeding troops piecemeal into a nightmarish meat grinder, which caused an immense uh, wound in the United States, a wound which probably will never truly be healed, and was once again being argued when President Bill Clinton, who has been called by a general whose career I'm sure is over, a draft dodger, among another group of things that he called him, decided to go ahead and go to the Vietnam Wall only a matter of a few weeks ago. You have to wonder about the difference in leadership, and especially the language that was used by these men, and indeed whether or not it would even be legal to make that many references to God, to state in God we trust, to say we're placing our hope in divine providence, and to so liberally sprinkle reference to the deity and the creator, as he is called, in the Declaration of Independence of the United States. Our Supreme Court will not allow children to pray in school. I would say, as I was looking at that very unfamiliar second verse to our national anthem, and straining to see the words sharing the book with Mr. Dart, because I don't have it memorized either, and I doubt if anybody in this room does, or millions of other Americans, that it's a wonder to me that some of these leftist liberals have not sued all the way to the Supreme Court to get those words ripped out of the national anthem. They probably would say that's a clear violation of the principle of the separation of church and state. Yearly, I have to look to my past history, go through in my mind all the experiences I've had in my trips all over the world and, in, and around the world, and in nations such as India and poverty-stricken nations in the Middle East, some of the downtrodden nations of Africa and Africa's west coast and elsewhere, elsewhere, having been to Vietnam during the Vietnam War and interviewed a young helicopter pilot who had just come back from uh, his trips flying a slick, as it was called, and evacuating wounded and so on. 
And I never fail to give thanks to God that I am, by an accident of nature that occurred to Herbert W. Armstrong and Loma D. Armstrong, an American, that I am so thankful that I am in this free land, that I can travel from here to Kansas or from here to Chicago or from here to Oregon to see my sister, and I'm not going to be stopped at any state border. Nothing is going to be confiscated. I'm not going to be searched. I don't have to have a lot of travel documents upon me. We can meet here today in safety and freedom, and even though we live in an increasingly violent land where people sitting down to eat a meal in a cafeteria, as happened a couple of years ago down in Killeen, can be murdered, or people working in law offices in four stories of a high-rise building in San Francisco this last week, when a man came in there with three different weapons and began killing everybody he could. We know that that type of thing occurs, but by and large, still, the average one of us is aware that we live in a land of great freedoms, a land of comparative peace, a land with the privilege and the freedom of meeting together in public where we actually have the right to criticize our own government, where we have the right to worship God in any manner or shape or mode or form that we choose, and where even though we might become very incensed when I tell you that there is a church of Satan the devil, and they perform their weddings and their ceremonies by lying the groom and the bride down in coffins, and they pray to the devil, and they are legally constituted, and they are tax-exempt. In one sense, as bizarre as that sounds, you ought to be thankful that you live in a country where even those incredible extremes are possible, for if we did not, we could not function as a church. I want you to go back with me and ask a question about the work of God that is predicted to take place in the Great Commission given to the church in the prophecy of Matthew 24, 14, that this gospel of the kingdom shall be preached in all the world as a witness. It is to be an international and a global witness to all nations, and then shall the end come. And I want to ask you the question, where should God have raised up his work? Where in the world was it possible in 1934 for the work of God to begin on the airwaves to preach the gospel of the kingdom of God as a witness and as a warning, to actually proclaim witnesses and warnings against the morals toboggan slide, the rise of crime, the proliferation of weaponry, the drums of war that were being heard all over Europe. Of course, alcoholism and uh, divorce and desertion and abandonment and pedophilia and all the things my father took issue with when I was a young child when he was on one radio station in Eugene, Oregon in 1934. Could the work of God over radio, eventually television, with the means of the printing press, Eventually, of course, with our modern computerized age and all the things that we understand now are useful in communication, including even satellite viewing of TV instantaneously all over the world. But when you think of 1934, if you go back and dust off the history part of your brain and remember what the world was like in 1934, could the work of God have begun in any Oriental country? Would it have begun in any Oriental country? A Buddhism? Shintoism, Taoism, Confucianism, and hundreds of other isms, spin-offs from those basic four religions? Well, obviously no. Could the work of God 
have begun anywhere in the nation in any of the nations of Africa, including South Africa, with the enormous amount of hatred between the Boers and the Breederbond and the British emigres and their latter generations, and the so-called coloreds and the blacks, and the incredible racial tensions in that at all times, very despotic, and it was pro-Nazi during World War II and prior to that time, but that very despotic nation. It is the only English-speaking, quote, democracy, end quote, on the entire African continent. Was there, is there any other nation in Africa where you could imagine the Word of God, the work of God, with the freedom of assembly, freedom of religion, saying that the government allows a religious organization to be tax-exempt to hold public meetings with blacks, Chicanos, Orientals, people of all races, welcome. Could that have happened in South Africa? Even today could it happen in South Africa? Well, then that's the whole continent of Africa and all of Asia we've dispensed with. And certainly you can throw in all of Southeast Asia, Indonesia, the Philippines, and Japan. So now we come to Central and South America. Could the work of God have started in Central and South America? So that a Latino speaking Spanish would have conducted, would have conveyed the word of God to all of the rest of the world. No, because it is dominated by, by whom? By the Pope in Rome. All of those nations, 98, 99, 100% Roman Catholic. Protestants are persecuted and sometimes murdered south of our border in Mexico in small villages, let alone in other nations further to the south. And what is the history of the so-called banana republics and the nations of South America but despotism, anarchy, civil war, violent overthrow of government, sometimes papal interdictions, and nearly always attempts by communists and other interests to infiltrate those governments. And so you've seen that Argentine, or the Argentine or Argentina was pro-Nazi during World War II, as was Brazil, as was Uruguay, as was Chile, as was and still is Peru, and these nations are the very places where many of the World War II higher echelon Nazis, including Dr. Josef Mengele, fled and lived and worked for many, many years after World War II. German is the second or third language, along with Italian, in Argentina. No, the work of God could not have started any, in any of those countries, could it? God would not have been using a Spanish-speaking Latino to convey the word of God to all of Europe and all of North America because nobody would have listened to him. If he'd have had a thick accent and come on in, greet his friends around the world. This is, uh, you know, Pedro Gonzalez in Mandes with the good news of the world tomorrow. How many people would have listened to it? Now, I'm not trying to make fun of a Mexican accent, you understand. That was my first love as my foreign language was Spanish and I loved the language. I love the people, I love a great deal of the culture, although some of it is rather rough when you study the history, but nevertheless, I love that language, it's a beautiful language. I'm not making fun of it, I'm merely asking the question, could a very heavily accented Latino have been the person to convey the Word of God to the free world, beginning in 1934, 35, 39, 41, 44, right through World War II and on down through today, could it have been done? in any other country. Could it have, now we have to get into Europe, have started in any of the European countries? Would you have been converted had you been listening to a person with a heavy Flemish accent, a heavy German accent, a heavy Dutch or a Belgian accent, a heavy French accent, 
Well, could it have begun in any of those countries who were bordering on the brink of World War II? French, the French people are mostly about 98% Catholic. The average Frenchman does not own a Bible, and the Catholic religion, in fact, discourages people from owning and reading a Bible. Well, now, that leaves out all of Europe. It certainly leaves out Germany. It certainly leaves out Russia. What about the nation of Italy? No way. Roman Catholic dominated. That's where the Pope lives, right there in the Vatican. Some Protestant believing in the Bible, preaching from the Bible, not the Ransdowe version, including the Apocrypha, as the Catholic Bible does, but the King James English Bible, preaching the Word of God, could not have done so in Italy. Well, it leaves England. Could it have been done in England? No. Because the Anglican Church, the only reason it is separate from the Pope in Rome is because of Henry VIII and his divorce, and the British King, then King George, now Queen Elizabeth, is the titular head of the Anglican Church. And to think that some movement which would have been taking issue with government and with the morality of the country and preaching the gospel of the kingdom of God and to thrive and to prosper and to grow to the point that it was actually having an impact upon the world could have happened beginning in 1934 in Great Britain is naive beyond belief. Really, by a simple process of elimination, looking at the history of those times, the only place on the face of the earth where freedom prevailed was in the United States of America, and God chose a Midwesterner, not with a Bostonian or New York or South Georgian or West Texan accent, but an indiscernible accent like any other newscaster who had migrated or immigrated with his family during the Great Depression from Iowa out to Oregon, and who had a background in writing and advertising. He had never spoken publicly, although he had helped his brother-in-law uh, win a prize in elocution and in debate, and he's written about that in his autobiography of taking him to see one of these riotous union uprisings and getting him all exercised about what was happening in the labor union movement of that time. When my mother wrote that letter that I have since published, and what a prize it is to me to have come into possession of that from my sister Beverly, and to find a letter written in my mother's own hand with its misspellings, with her own colloquialisms, to her dear friend who was the closest high school chum uh, back in Iowa, of a miraculous healing, and that letter was written three years before I was born. And I'd heard my father tell that story out of the pulpit so many times, and humanly, carnally, as I admitted in the booklet, I tended to doubt if it really happened just that way. I tended to think, since my father was given a little bit to exaggeration now and then, that maybe he was exaggerating, and it really didn't occur exactly as he said. You can imagine the feeling of reading these words, not written to a religious person, not written to a member of the church he was then beginning to attend and get interested in at all, but written to a high school chum who went to the Methodist church about these miraculous healings that had taken place in her body. Well. It all came down to the point in time when I was back home out of the Navy and I finally began to study and get my eyes open and some things happened in my personal life, all of which resulted in me taking a good long look inside Garner Ted Armstrong and for the first time picking up some of my father's literature 
and beginning to read it and compare it with the Bible and with other literature written by other church organizations. I finally, and I'm not ashamed to admit that today, no matter what has been done to Herbert W. Armstrong's name by the organization he left in the hands of others, no matter their burning of his books, their expunging of his name from everything he ever wrote, and their attempts to remove every vestige of even a remembrance of that name from their organization, never mind all of that, I am standing here telling you I'm proud to be Herbert W. Armstrong's son. I'm standing here telling you, God used that man. God called my father. God raised him up. God inspired him. God guided and directed him. And for decades of his life, when I was a growing boy, God guided that man's mind. When God finally called me and had called a group of other young men about my same age, many of whom are now in their mid-sixties, and whose names you would recognize, to assist and to help my father in building that organization. It became a very vast organization, to the point that I was eventually the executive vice president of a very large church with over 700 ministers, with an $11 million payroll. $11 million in salaries is a lot more than our annual budget by several times over, to give you an idea. Where I was the director, and Mr. Dart uh, was actually the director and, and uh, worked in that job for a time, as did later on Mr. Les McCullough when Mr. Dart became director of the church administration department, of more than 21 overseas offices in places all over the world where we were preaching and proclaiming the gospel of the kingdom of God in Spanish, German, French, Russian, and eventually other languages, and where we had magazines in all of those languages. How well I remember having a European office managers conference in the early 1970s or the latter 1960s, two different ones I remember, in Switzerland. Tricidica, as they call it over there, and go over there and meet with these people, the office managers from France and from Switzerland and from England and from all over the world who would meet there together and to hold in my hands beautiful magazines in languages I couldn't read, La Pure Vérité, the, the Plain Truth in French, La Pure Vérité, the Plain Truth in Spanish, and so on, and to realize the tremendous size to which that organization, that work, grew. My father began to think very late in his life that maybe he was not going to live until the second coming of Christ, although there were those who almost made a religion out of the thought that he would in the years prior to his death. But he wrote very shortly before he died that he believed that his work was over. But he really believed that he had reached nations with a witness and a warning, and I had to disagree, because I did not feel that an appropriate witness and warning had been given to nations such as China by merely meeting with a group of educators and telling them that the solution to the problems of the world was by the interposition or the intervention of a strong hand from someplace. No, I thought it had to be a real witness and a real warning, just like the prophets of old. Have you ever gone back to one of the Bible handbooks like Halley's or Angus and looked at the dates on the prophets in your Old Testament of your Bible of how God grouped a number of them around the impending national calamity and captivity to, default, to befall ancient Israel, 
Then he grouped the bulk of the remainder of them right around the impending national calamity to befall Judah. What did those prophets do? How did they become a prophet? Amos said that he was no, no prophet, wasn't the son of a prophet, but a herdsman out gathering fruit, and God called him. Certainly the Apostle Paul is an example in the New Testament of God just saying, I want you, and working out circumstances, and calling him, and commissioning him to go and do what God wanted him to do. Read the first chapter of Ezekiel. Read the first chapter of Jeremiah. Read the first six chapters of Isaiah. Read how most of them were unwilling, that none of them volunteered, that God called them, put his words in their mouth, sometimes figuratively like, like a little book, sometimes as in the vision given to Isaiah, like the tongs or the fiery coal that came from a, a fire beneath the very altar of God, which was symbolic of the white-hot uh, heat of his wrath against the people to whom Isaiah was being sent. God gave them a conviction. He gave them a commission. He gave them a calling. He empowered them by his Spirit, and he sent them where? To the head of state, to the leaders of government, to the capitals of the world, to the people who made the decision, to today's equivalent of the legislative branch of government, the executive branch of government, to people like the heads of Supreme Courts and presidents and premiers and prime ministers and kings, in those days, nearly always, they were called kings or emperors. It is quite likely that Paul's final testimony, either given privately in person, and we have no history to confirm that, or in some public forum, was given before Emperor Nero, and that Paul died for that statement that he made in the Colosseum in Rome. God sent his prophets to give the warning where the warning would do the most good, to where the possibility of decision-making could have saved the nation. Now, quickly in your biblical memory, where is the only case in the entirety of biblical history where God sent a prophet to the leader of a nation and the leader repented and saved his nation and his people's lives? It was, of course, Jonah, who was sent to Nineveh, a pagan nation, the nation of Asher or Assyria, a pagan king, not an Israelitish king, not a Jewish king, not God's chosen seed of Abraham, but a pagan king, and he believed the prophecy, and he called a national fast and called upon his people to repent, and the national calamity was averted. My father, Herbert W. Armstrong, was an ad man. He knew how to get people's attention, how to ask a question, to get them thinking, well, now that's something I have wondered about all my life, or I've never thought of that, what is the answer to that, or that's something that I really want to find out about. And he would write message ads, and then eventually, when he was called upon to give a Bible study, the first Bible study he ever gave the people enjoyed it so much that they asked him to come back and begin speaking to them. And he was drafted by the congregation into a speaking ministry in a little church that was affiliated with the Oregon Conference of the Church of God's Seventh Day up in Oregon City, Oregon. And later on, when we were down, he was around Salem area, I think, and then later on, I was a little boy, only three, and, and I remember vaguely some of the things that happened when I was four. 
When my father and mother moved down to Eugene, Oregon, I can only remember very vaguely the first house we lived in back then, and don't remember a thing at all about my first day in the first grade. can't even tell you anything about it. My memory is very vague during those days, but my sister Dorothy, who was already a young teenager, remembers those years very, very vividly. And she is ten years older than I am. We hope to be able to visit her before the end of the summer. And we always do talk about the family, and we always refresh our memory by going through the old picture box, and we'll get out pictures of some of us four children when we were young, and we'll go over some of those old reminiscences with my sister. And that's a good exercise, I think, for all families to do, and I think it's a very natural one. But it does take me back and make me realize to look back to my roots, both national, both from the standpoint of the state in which I was born and where I was very privileged and blessed to partake of what Oregon had as an educational system, and my family, my roots, who I am, and where I'm coming from. I want to now interject a profile of a person in the United States of America, and you can guess who this is. This is a profile that was put together by a very, very prominent psychologist, Dr. David Abramson, from thousands upon thousands of interviews, case histories, and case studies. Only one out of ten of these people is psychotic or cut off from reality. The remaining nine know very well the differences between right and wrong and can actually feel a sense of guilt when they do something wrong. Most of them, though, lack a sense of identity or purpose, a knowledge of exactly who they are, what they stand for, where they fit in society. They feel often that only money is what will give them a sense of being somebody. They want immediate satisfaction. They're not willing to wait. They're a part of the now generation. They want theirs now. They don't want to work up to success. They don't want to take 20 years and study and sacrifice and sometimes struggle and almost fail and finally achieve success. They want it instantly. Often they come from loveless homes where there has been basic misunderstanding or a divorce. Usually their homes are only houses, sometimes even a slum, sometimes a mansion, because they represent every economic stratum of society, but a house where everyone was going his own way. They feel they cannot gain respect or love without being successful, and success is defined by the size of your bank account. They have no real definition of success other than material accumulation. They are engrossed in themselves, their own little world, their own emotions of the moment, their own plans, their own hopes, their own innermost turmoil and conflict, their own fears. They tend to show little real interest in their environment, and especially the great environment of the world around them. At the same time, they feel themselves to be all-powerful, all-knowing, and always right. They can see around them all sorts of other people doing wrong things which put pressure upon them to cheat, lie, steal, and even to kill. Dr. Abramson concludes, crime is a part of the American culture. We are engulfed by an attitude whose aim is to find shortcuts 
keep moving, get ahead, and get away with something, his thousands upon thousands of case studies, they were conducted inside maximum security prisons. And you thought I was reading a profile of the average American. If you will turn to the book of Jeremiah, we will read a scripture here that I think, that I think is appropriate. Jeremiah, the second chapter, and verse 5. Thus says the Eternal. What iniquity have your fathers found in me? What's wrong with God? Why is God so bad? Why are his laws so wrong? What is so terrible about God? That they're gone far from me, turned their back and forgotten me, and walked after uselessness, vanity, emptiness, and are become vain. That means empty or foolish. Neither did they say, Where is God? Where is the Eternal that did great things for us in the past, brought us up out of the land of Egypt, led us through the wilderness, through a land of deserts and pits, through a land of drought and the shadow of death, through a land that no man passed through and where no man dwelt. And I brought you into a plentiful country to eat the fruit thereof and the goodness thereof. But when you entered, you defiled my land and made mine heritage an abomination. The priests, the religious type, said not, where is the eternal? Let's seek God. Let's find God. How do we find God? They that handled the law knew me not. The pastors also transgressed against me, and the prophets prophesied by Baal, a false god, a pagan sun worship, and walked after things that do not profit. Wherefore, I will yet plead with you, says the Eternal, and with your children's children will I plead. So this pleading was to go on generation after generation, on down through time. Pass over the isles of Kittim, or Cyprus, and see. See unto Kedar, send unto Kedar and consider diligently. So look in China, look in Mogadishu, and look in Sarajevo, and see and consider diligently if you've seen any such thing. Has a nation that you know of here, Japan, China, anywhere, changed their gods, which aren't even gods, which are yet no gods, pagan idols? Have they changed? Which was, what was the religion of ancient China way back B.C.? Same religion as it is today, virtually. Now, Buddha came along much later, but the paganism, the animism, was there. But my people have changed their glory for that which does not profit. Be astonished, O you heavens, at this. Be ye horribly afraid, and be ye very desolate, says the Eternal. For my people have committed two evils. They have forsaken me, the fountain of living waters, and hewed them out cisterns, broken cisterns, that can hold no water. If I were to imagine the cabinet, the House of Representatives, some of their names would be so familiar to you if I were to read some of them off, the Senate of the United States, check kiters, liars, one of them openly homosexual, and to ask myself, what if these were the men whose, in that case, 50 signatures appeared on that document, which is looked upon as virtually sacred by many people, that reposes under thick protective glass in the National Archives building in Washington, D.C., and that this was the quality of character of the individuals who looked across and realized that the signature they were putting on that piece of paper was going to immediately unleash a fury across the seas in England where the world's largest standing army, the world's largest navy, 
the world's most efficient fighting force, would soon be sailing into their bays and estuaries and disembarking troops and killing them with rifles, confiscating their property, their cattle, taking their women, killing their young sons, and perhaps taking them back to England in irons. You remember in 1992 in the election campaign when Mr. George Bush, former president, said, it is an issue of character. Well, it was, and it still is. Now, on the one hand, that is not my purpose today, but I should not be surprised when I see the things happening to the nation that I say is my nation, because in my empirical self I say that is my home over there, and that is my yard. And if a neighbor comes by and he takes a big black trash bag and he throws it out his window and it bursts and here's a lot of garbage and refuse and flies buzzing around and he has dumped his garbage in my yard, that annoys me. He has befouled my yard. Now, on the other hand, when I see that there is an RV park over here that was caught in the act the other day of taking all of the collection from a huge big tank that they drain from all of their RV units from the toilets and the showers and accumulate it, and because they don't want to take the trouble to drive all the way to town, they were not only seen, and they've done this over the years, but they were photographed recently of dumping raw sewage into the shores of Lake Palestine right around the corner from where our water supply comes flowing through that drinking fountain out there. I say to myself, something ought to be done because these people are polluting my lake. Now, you know, you can say it's my Texas my United States of America. And you can see, you can feel a sort of proprietorship for your empirical self and your environment, whether it's your own home, your own county, your own state, or your own nation. And that is good. You should feel that because you should care for it and not despoil it and pollute it. Thirty-three years ago and a few months, then-President Eisenhower said this, and I quote, America did not become great through softness and self-indulgence. Her miraculous progress and achievement flow from other qualities far more worthy and substantial. Adherence to principles and methods consonant with our religious philosophy. A satisfaction in hard work. Where do you see that extant today? With the state lotteries. With everybody wanting to get rich quick with gambling proliferating from Atlantic City to down here in, uh, I think, Mo uh, somewhere around Mobile to a huge big hotel going up in New Orleans, and now suddenly where it used to be only Las Vegas, Nevada, and Reno, Nevada, now state after state after state has put in all kinds of absolute, rampant, unbridled gambling because the get-rich-quick-I-want-mine-now mentality of Americans, most of whom cannot afford it, and where are all these billions of dollars coming from but the poor, Every time I go to buy a sack of little groceries, or Cheryl says, stop by and get some milk and eggs at a little country store right over here, there's somebody in there buying these lottery tickets. Absolutely unbelievable. they got a budget. They'll spend $20, $30, $40, $50 a month on the lottery and just scream to the heavens about taxation, which doesn't really make a lot of sense when you stop to think about it. It's merely a little bit of a look into the attitude of most Americans today. The methods consonant with our religious philosophy, a satisfaction in hard work, the readiness to sacrifice for worthwhile causes, I have, in, 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 in a sense, knee-jerk fashion, okay, in reaction to that uh, mindset of American people, not once 
in 15 years, when we've had some excruciating budget difficulties, when we have been tens of thousands of dollars in arrears, as we were as of yesterday, $45,000 negative in the bank, but we cannot pay for the bills that are sitting up there waiting to be paid. And in 15 years, because I am, in a sense, in knee-jerk fashion, responding to this attitude that is out there, because I saw it being, I think, overworked previously in years gone by, I have never once used the word sacrifice. I have, in a sense, been afraid to. And maybe, as I have said in the past, the way to look at that is if and when we are living in a mobile home, I used to say trailer house, and people wrote me and said, don't ever say that again. I want you to ever say that again. Like, that's a bad place to live. I live in a mobile home, and it's lovely. You bet it is. So does my son, and it's lovely. I have a little grandson, and uh, the family was living in a mobile home when he was born. It's a beautiful place, a beautiful mobile home. So I'm just saying that one can be purchased for a good bit less money, as millions of Americans know, than going out and building a home for fifty, sixty, seventy, seventy-five thousand dollars $75,000. And the only thing you can get for that kind of money today is still a little maybe three-bedroom, two-bath, if that, maybe two-bedroom, one-bath frame dwelling without any frills whatsoever. And I've said time and again, when I'm riding a bicycle to work and I live in a mobile home and I've got one suit and this is it, then I'll put the word sacrifice in some of my letters. But it still is merely a commentary on an attitude, and I hope that that attitude has not crept into God's church like a pollutant or like some virus, to where we in God's church are also unwilling to ever hear the word sacrifice for a worthwhile cause. Now, I happen to know we're not, because tacitly, I can tell you, that many people sacrificed a great deal of their time and money to come down here to help make this camp a success for these kids. Lots of volunteers. And other people are sacrificing, and I know that there are wives who are sacrificing by staying home and pulling more of their share of the burden while their husbands are coming down here to summer school. And I know that there are people who sacrifice financially for the work, but they do so quietly without fanfare, and you don't hear anybody asking for kudos or accolades, but they are sacrificing energy, money, and time for God's work. And I think that is wonderful. That is an example that many people are setting. I merely wanted to say that as I read some of these statements that are so prophetic in nature, and I realize that most Americans are not of an attitude that they would be willing to sacrifice for worthwhile causes. The courage to meet every challenge to her progress, the intellectual honesty and capacity to recognize the true path of her own best interest. And only a few days before that, Roger Babson, he was a very famed economist, and he's long since dead, said this, The test of a nation is the growth of its people physically, intellectually, and spiritually. Money and so-called prosperity are all a very little account. Babylon, Persia, Greece, Rome, Spain, and France all had their turn in being the richest in the world. Whose turn is it next? Japan, Germany, and the United States of Europe. Our turn is over. We are going to slide down to become like a Bangladesh before it's all over, like a third world country. But all these great nations have their turn in being the richest in the world. Instead of saving them, their so-called prosperity ruined them. Our nation, this is over 30 years ago, and you can't say this anymore, is now rated the richest. Well, it's not now. 
but it could easily become a second-class nation and head downward. Yes, it could, and it has. Money will not save us. Crops will not save us. Stock exchanges and banks will not save us. Already our gold at Fort Knox is diminishing. If he were alive today, he would be shocked to know it was long since gone, almost 20 years ago. Not one ounce remained that was tagged, owned by the United States of America, and we are the world's greatest debtor. We owe more money, or in debt to more countries, than the third world impoverished nations like Brazil and some of the others you could mention. Here's what he finally concluded. Only a sane spiritual revival which changes the desires of our people will save us. We must be filled with a desire to render service, to seek strength rather than security, to put character ahead of profits. Now, what were the motives of the people who went to the polls in the last election? Were their motives character or were their motives profits? What were the promises given to whom? To special interests, to the so-called poor. And you compare our, quote, poor, in quote, with people in Mogadishu and Bangladesh, and you get a whole different concept of what it means to be poor. But if you look at the people who flocked to the polls, who wanted to get what Mr. Clinton said he would be able to deliver, you are seeing an entire nation who put profits ahead of character. Yet here are these prophetic statements made sometimes 20 and 30 years ago that unless we have it in reverse, unless character, unless some spiritual revival occurs in the United States, we're going to go down the drain. Well, they've been saying that for decades. Not just religionists, not preachers, not theologians, but presidents, economists, people who have their fingers on the pulse of the economy and the nation as a whole. I want to turn to a couple of scriptures now. Jesus Christ gave us a statement or two concerning the work that is going out. And let me see. I'll find my notes where I put it. Yes, in John 9 and verse 4, if you will turn to that. In John 9 and verse 4, Jesus said, I must work the works of him that sent me while it is day. The night comes when no man can work. Now, I know that it is still day today as I stand here, and even though I see our country in every bracket that you could mention, whether you want to talk about crime, the family, drugs, alcoholism, teenage pregnancies, uh, whatever, pedophilia, and you can mention it and just go on and on and on about the average person you meet today. The average American you meet today is a liar. The average American is a cheat. What I'm saying is that that profile that I read, which actually is thousands of case histories derived from interviews with criminals inside maximum security prisons, sounded exactly to you like the average person in society didn't sound like some aberrant idiot out here that is different from anybody else. It was the values that you see all around you, in school, in society, everywhere. I didn't ask our campers to raise their hands, how many of you live in a school where you have free condoms passed out? I didn't ask them that. I didn't ask them this year, how many of you are in a school where you are aware of drugs being around? But if I had, a lot of hands would have gone up. How many of you live in a school where you're aware that some kids are bringing a gun to the classroom? If I'd asked those questions, a lot of hands would have gone up. It's a society in which we live. Now, right now, we're still able to do the work of God. 
We still have the freedom to cross these state lines. I have the freedom to say what I will within certain bounds. Certain people are trying to muzzle me, like WGN in Chicago and like the uh, uh, satellite network up in Canada, by Xing me off the air when I quote from the first chapter of Romans that homosexuality is a rotten, filthy sin. They don't want me to say that on the air. Well, I'll say it anyway. And maybe I won't say it on their station, but I'll say it on plenty of other stations and tell over the other stations that they are the station who would let me say it on theirs and brand them for whatever they are. But we're still not experiencing brick coming through the windows and we're not having armed guards tell us, you can't go in there to this meeting because this is not authorized. Amos said... Quote, Behold, the days come, says the Lord Eternal, that I will send a famine in the land, not a famine of bread, nor a thirst for water, but of hearing the words of the Eternal. How long do we have to go before we will not be able to do the work of God and to do it in a public forum? I tell you, I don't care what you might think of a man like Rush Limbaugh, but he, in a sense, is paving the way for a great deal of dissent in this country, and is, in a sense, I'm finally becoming convinced, even though I've got to remain off-political, performing an incredible service. Because people are writing to him. People are listening, and they are sending him documentation, in the same way they used to send me documentation when I had the Ambassador College News Bureau many years ago, and people all over the world, from Australia to South Africa, would send me those little clippings from page 19 of their local newspaper that you would never hear about and they would come flooding into my office, and the news bureau would gather them together. And I've got several great big thick books. Most of them are out of date today, but they were the data that was gathered from all over the world on any given aspect of any topic whatsoever that had to do with society, whether it was the family or crime or jurisprudence, criminal justice, didn't matter. Here were thick dossiers of things from all over the world and what the trends and conditions were at that time. So it was wonderful to be able to have that. Well, I was sitting there the other morning, and my wife said, you've got to hear this. I taped this last night. I want to play for you a few minutes of what Rush Limbaugh said. Somebody had called or written to him, and it said, I have here a tape of a speech that John Kennedy made before a group of economists in Chicago, and I believe it was prior to his election as president. He was campaigning, I believe, at the time. Well... Rush Limbaugh played it on his program. I could not believe what it said. It said the exact opposite of what Clinton and the entire Democratic Party is saying today. Kennedy said the way to stimulate the economy is to lower taxes. That if you do this, it turns loose middle America, it turns loose risk-taking, entrepreneurship, and that eventually it is going to increase revenues because it is putting far more people to work. Small business succeeds, hires people, more people are working, there are more people therefore to share the tax burden. And it could have sounded exactly like a Republican of today. And here were the documents, they rolled the words as well as you hearing the inimitable accent of John Fitzgerald Kennedy of that time with his Bostonian, you know, uh, Massachusetts accent. It was a really uh, an eye-opener. And then he proceeded to put the statistics of the national economy on the screen for you to see what had happened in the ensuing years when that tax program with those tax cuts were put in place and revenues went up. 
So he is performing a service. And I am afraid that every now and then I'm caught watching a tape, at least, of what my wife taped on the night before. I try to remain off-political on my programs, but if you hear sometimes some of the things creeping in there that are concerning an awful lot of Americans today, don't be a bit surprised. Well, I wish we had the money because what I wish I could do with all my heart is go back on daily radio. I wish I could also expand into daily television. Now, I'd rather not because it's hard work. But that's called sacrifice. And every single day I'm storming around my house or I'm in talking to Mr. Dart or other people around the office and we're going around and around and around about things happening and I've got no outlet. I've got no forum. I've got to wait and have one half hour in one 24-hour period of seven 24-hour periods is the only crack I get that the American public on one television program per week because we don't have the financial wherewithal to do it. I wish we could get back on daily radio. It's not a matter of me just doing it. It's a matter of dollars. And it's a matter of having the dollars to stay the long course to be on stations to take the time necessary to build an audience until finally the station begins to pay for itself. But just like going into a brand new business, you've got to be able to ride out that initial payment you've got to start making, including interest to the bank, before your business turns a profit and you begin to make money and you begin then to amortize your indebtedness and to have a little bit of profit in addition. And the same thing is true of us going on a radio station. Until sufficient people begin to respond to that program and then begin to tithe and to send in offerings as a result of listening to that program, there's a long period of time where we're paying for it and we're subsidizing it and we have to be willing to do that. Well, I want to leave that with you. I know that to me, when I uh, see the 4th of July come along and I rummage around in my garage and get out my American flag and stick it on the front of my house, I can't help but go back and realize how great it is to be an American, how great it is to have been born in Oregon in 1930, how great it is to be the son of Herbert W. Armstrong, and how great it is to have been called of God and to have the privilege to do His work.